Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to go on and get started now. Um, I, I'm taking this opportunity to invite people to move up if they like. <laughs> I don't know. We don't have any PA system. I don't know how well we all project. I know I used to teach high school, so I can shout to the parking lot. But uh, anyway, y'all might, some of you in the back might want to move up so you can hear a little bit better. Uh, I'm going to do a very brief introduction. I'm Emily Fox Hill. I'm the coordinator for the Mid-South Coalition for Comfort Care and Bioethics. We are a grassroots community coalition that addresses issues of chronic and serious illness from birth through end of life. Uh, we do educational programs like this one. We also have uh, programs on alternate first Tuesdays of alternate months at Tresbet Terrace where we have programs and we have a listserv. So if you want to keep up with what we're doing, uh, when you signed up you had the opportunity to check that you wanted the emails. If you don't get those and you want them, please do that before you leave and I will put you, I keep up with that, I will put you on that email list server. Um, Oh, uh, we will take questions at the end, so uh, keep your questions in mind, hold your questions, and we'll take questions from, um, from all the speakers at the end. And there is an evaluation in your packet. Please fill out that evaluation for us so that we know things like where you heard about us, how good of a job you thought we did, and what other types of presentations you might like. With that said, I'm going to turn it over to our first speaker, Patty Williams. She is one of our board members, and she was caregiver for both of her parents and is really on fire to inform and support caregivers. Thank you, Emily. <laughs> um, I am Patty Williams, and um, a year, about a year after my parents died, I saw little blurb in the paper. Can you hear me back there? Okay. Um, and I came to one of these meetings. I am a teacher, not a medical professional. And so when um, I started this journey with my parents, I really knew very little about the healthcare system and how it worked and what we needed to do. And I experienced a lot of frustrations and had a lot of questions, although a lot of things went right, but some didn't go so right, and I knew that I needed more information, but I didn't know which, which kinds to have, and uh, the coalition has helped a lot. So I'm hoping that my story today and some of the uh, references that I have given you in your packet will help you and give you more information along the way. Um, I tried to help my parents find their way through the maze of health care with very little guidance. Since that time, I've watched many friends and family members struggle with the same issues and realize there's a need for more information to be available to the general public as we're all in this together. Uh, I've gained much insight from the coalition as well as on my own experiences helping my family and I hope that sharing the story of my parents and myself will be helpful to you. I spent the better part of one summer helping my parents downsize and make a move from California to Memphis. Um, and at that time, bingo, I became a family caregiver. Uh, if you are in that position at all, or will be, you will 
not ask for this. It just comes to you. And I was certainly glad to do and help in any way that I could. Um, my parents were in their late 80s when I moved them from California. They already had medical issues um, with congestive heart failure, some heart problems, uh, and so on. Uh, there are two types of caregivers. There's a formal caregiver and a family caregiver. Formal caregivers are volunteers or paid providers who may have special training in caregiving. These persons are usually part of the healthcare system, not-for-profit organization or social service program that provides services to seniors or persons with chronic conditions. They may work in long-term care facilities, home health agencies, or may be self-employed and hired directly by the family. Family caregivers, on the other hand, are usually spouses, family members, neighbors, or friends. They are unpaid individuals who provide all or part of the care for others who need assistance with daily living and emotional support as they face chronic illness, disability, or death. They may live in or out of the patient's home. Sometimes a care team is made up of both, the family and the formal. I'll refer several times to a book by Gail Sheehy, if any of you are familiar with her. She has authored many books, uh, one of which was on the bestseller for a long time called Passages, the different passages that we go through in our lifetime. After um, uh, taking care of her husband and following as a caregiver for 17 years, she has written the book uh, Passages in Healthcare, and I will refer to that. In that book, uh, she gives a definition of a family caregiver in quotes, untrained family member or friend to act as advocate, researcher, care manager, and emotional support for a parent or spouse, child, sibling, or friend who has been diagnosed with a serious illness or chronic disability. The duties, make medical decisions, negotiate with insurance companies or Medicare, pay bills, legal work, personal care and entertainment in the hospital and rehab and aftercare at home. Hours are on demand, salary and benefits zero. Caregivers can be a husband caring for his wife with Alzheimer's, a sister caring for her middle-aged brother with cancer, a mother caring for her adult child with a brain injury or mental illness, or a friend or neighbor caring for a person who has a stroke. One care, often caregivers are sandwiched between caregiving and raising their own children and or holding down a full or part-time job. Burdens on caregivers include, but are not limited, to burnout, loss of jobs, financial concerns, stress, and declining health. Here are a few statistics from the National Center on Caregiving from February 2015. We are not alone. 65 million family caregivers in this country. 27 million of these help people aged 15 and over with disability and chronic illness. 66% of older people with disabilities get all of their care from family caregivers who are mostly wives and daughters. 
lost income and benefits over a caregiver's lifetime, for men, $284,000, for women, $324,000. In the effort to increase the effectiveness of medical care, hospital stays are shorter and outpatient procedures have increased. While this may be a positive change, the responsibility has shifted from paid providers to unpaid providers, that is, family caregivers, which has increased the burden on them. Um, there are organizations and people who are working toward, uh, with the government to see if we can get money paid for family caregivers. At this point, there is none. Insurance does not pay. Whose care must be considered first? Considering the importance and necessity of the designation as caregivers, sometimes there's no one else to take this responsibility, care for the caregiver is a top priority. Just as the airline makes the announcement, put on your oxygen mask first before you put it on your child. Where will your loved one be if you are unable to do this job? My cousin, whose health was already compromised, was taking care of her parents with dementia who were also living with her. When the social worker came to her house, Judy started talking about her parents and the social worker said, no wait, um, I want first to know about you. We lose more caretakers than we do patients. Four good questions to ask yourself periodically. Number one, am I uncomfortable putting myself first at times? I certainly was. Do I think I should always meet the needs of other people before my own? I did. Do I feel I should be a perfect caregiver? Not sure I thought about that. Do I minimize or deny that I have needs? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you may be ignoring your needs to your detriment and to your loved one. Here are some suggestions for caring for yourself, some of which come from Gail Sheehy. Maintain your own health by staying current with medical checkups and care. Learn stress management exercises like Tai Chi, yoga, or meditation. The internet is full of free classes and instructions. And in the resources handout that I gave you, uh, there is, you can Google for um, guided meditations, uh, which are very helpful. I use those all the time. Enroll in an exercise class where you have some social contact, or get good exercise by walking, dancing, biking, swimming, etc., for at least three times a week, a minimum of 20 minutes. Go somewhere quiet and read for an hour. Nothing about illness and caregiving, but something fun or stimulating or inspirational. Have coffee with a friend. Think twice about quitting your job. You may want or need it later. Join a support group. Eat healthy and get plenty of rest. Hire a caregiver or ask a family member or friend to be there when you can. I did this for my mother and the caregiver was my eyes and ears in the hospital and the nursing home when I could not always be there. Don't take on guilt when you do something for yourself. I was a caregiver for my parents for five years and I was almost always on call. 
One week I took an advantage of a trip opportunity to meet two cousins in uh, Banff, Canada. And uh, it was one of the only times that I was ever away. While I was there, uh, my mother called my phone continuously. And uh, two times we put everything in the car and we headed to the airport and I thought I needed to come back. And halfway there I said, not doing this. <laughs> and this was hard for me, not doing this. If it were really critical, somebody from the hospital or nursing home would have called me or the caregiver would have. But it was a hard decision for me to make. Stay in contact with your friends and family, especially if they have positive energy. It will lift your spirits and some may be willing to help. Please let them. Have a short list ready in case they ask. Buy groceries or medical supplies. Visit with the patient while you take a break. Arrange a time and place to have lunch with friends. You need people now and you will need them when you begin to rebuild your life. And there is life after caregiving, but you need a life when you are in the midst of it also. Watch funny movies. One day I watched the movie, You've Got Mail. How many of you saw that movie? Okay. I rented it, and I watched it three times right in a row. The minute it was over, I put it back, and I watched it again, and then I watched it again because I felt so parched, like I had been walking in the desert for a week with no water. And as I watched that movie, I began to feel the life coming back to me. <clears throat> what are my responsibilities as a family caregiver? Family conversations about critical illness and end of life are difficult and awkward, but very important and it is so much easier to do when everyone is well and emotions are calm. That timing can allow for honest discussion, reflection, and planning. And it is really helpful if comments and talks can occur periodically in the course of life events, such as knowing a friend or family member who has undergone a lengthy illness, or following a TV program which deals with these topics. Discussing someone's illness and resulting treatment can spark a lively conversation and many different perspectives about choices each person would make if the same circumstances were to visit them. The object here is not to judge opinions as right or wrong, but to explore the what-ifs and learn what each family member holds dear according to his own values and beliefs. I try to do this with my own family, especially with my children. Um, when opportunities come up, either through a program at the coalition or a friend who's had an illness or someone that we know, I will say to them, you know, if I were in this, this situation, this is what I would want or this is what I would not want. And then I tell them, which I think is very important, I'm going to write these things down and you listen to me also. And then, if you get to the point that you have to make a decision for me, know that I am saying now to you, thank you for doing this for me. This is not your decision, this is my decision. You don't need to feel the guilt. If I say, I don't want any more done, then you just say, this is what my mom wanted. 
and it takes the guilt and the onus off of them, which I think is really important. I have a cousin who was a surgeon, and he said it was so difficult for people to make these decisions. And if you know that this is what your loved one wants, then that takes the onus off of you, and you are really following through. You're showing your love for them. As a caregiver for someone with critical illness or end-of-life concerns, it is important to have a depth of understanding about their values and what gives meaning to their life. Maybe this will be apparent due to a long and close relationship with this person. Having conversations about these meaningful life events and memories gives the caregiver a basis for making decisions in the event that the patient cannot speak for himself. These talks can be a good lead-in to discussions about the best way to continue having a meaningful life throughout the trials of serious illness and possibly facing death. Are family and friend relationships important and are these people welcome and needed to join the patient on this journey? Would a visit by a priest or rabbi or other spiritual guide be helpful? Is there a desire to mend any relationships that have been splintered by grievances or disputes? All of this can lead to a natural pathway to two necessary documents, the advanced care plan or living will and the healthcare agent form or power of attorney for healthcare. Other names for this second document, the power of attorney, or the healthcare agent form is also you are a proxy, advocate, and agent. Neither of these documents requires an attorney. Your packet will contain reference information about both along with instructions. The advanced care plan details what types of medical treatment a person wants at the end of life if he is unable to speak for himself. It informs medical professions, uh, professionals about a person's wishes regarding life-sustaining treatments as these decisions reflect his values and goals for his life. The two advanced directives used most often are five wishes and the advanced care plan, which is the state form. It is important to know, note that this form giving um, the, uh, the agent jurisdiction over the patient is only good when the patient cannot speak for himself. And if the patient recovers and can speak for himself, then he is the one who dictates this. Um, these forms may be changed at any time, partially or totally, but if this is done, notification should be made to all who hold the originals and new copies must be given to them. Persons who should have copies of these documents include the healthcare agent, personal doctors, hospital, nursing home, and close family members. A copy should also accompany the patient who travels, and the original should be kept in a safe, easily in a safe, easily acceptable, accessible location. It is important to note that these documents are used only for the time period that the patient cannot speak for himself. I believe that it is extremely necessary to understand the various life-sustaining treatments being addressed in the advanced care plan. There are benefits and burdens to each, and a clear understanding is necessary in order to make a decision in keeping with the patient's value system. 
The principal treatments are CPR and artificial nu nutrition, which is a feeding tube, and hydration, which is a ventilator, as well as kidney dialysis. Some information on these issues have been included in the handout. You do have a handout that will tell you in more detail about these, when they're good to use, when they might not want to be used, etc. Being a strong patient advocate is the most important job of a caregiver. This is particularly true when that person is in the hospital or long-term care facility. It may be necessary to ask for a second or third opinion, insist that the patient be seen sooner rather than later in emergency due to frailty and condition, or get a full explanation about a new procedure or medication. You must be given time to get a full explanation and ask questions of any change that occurs for that patient. Any change in medication, any change in procedure, any change in location. Don't be afraid to get a second opinion. Passive caregivers tend to be overlooked by busy medical practitioners. So it is important that caregivers are present and actively participating on behalf of the patient. This requires an attitude of working as a team, the medical staff, the caregiver, and the patient. When caregiver and patient view themselves as part of this team, they will show consideration of time constraints on the staff, as well as speaking for patient needs. When this is accomplished, the patient may often receive more attention and care than otherwise. Uh, this article that came from Next Avenue is also in your packet. And I just want to read what one person said. He had been uh, in the hospital and experienced um, uh, surgery. And he said, and it's called Five Things to Do During and After a Hospital Stay. Uh, he talks here, the first thing, when you're in the hospital, have someone who is smart, professional and assertive stay with you to serve as an advocate. Loving you is not the primary qualification for a partner in these circumstances. This person has to be smart enough to understand what's really going on, cool enough to stabilize the emotional level instead of increasing it, astute enough to make sure you have a realistic level of ongoing attention, and still have the energy and desire to do for you the small things that you temporarily cannot do for yourself. He or she needs to be someone whose capabilities and interest in your health are absolutely solid and who has the confidence and pluck to keep asking questions of medical professionals even if they are rushed, brusque, or difficult. This assumes, of course, that you have been proactive by creating and providing a medical power of attorney and an advanced care directive to both your personal physician and your hospital for their records. If you have not done so, don't wait. Doing it when you are sick is way too late. You can download the forms you need. Be sure to get the forms appropriate for your, for your state, and this, all, this information is also available in your handout. Uh, I want to say that it occurred to me 
generally, I, generally we think of this, the needs for these documents to be for older people whose health is declining. But it occurred to me as I was in coalition meetings that I have two adult children, one son, one daughter. They are not married, have not been married, have no children. And if they were in a car accident, if they had a sudden health issue, we would need to know what they would want to do. And we've had my son already sign a health care advocate so that we could speak for him. And I've talked with him enough so that I know. So this is not just for the older generations. Really, it's for all of us. It's for all adults. Uh, so that the burden of decision-making isn't always on the, care the caregiver. So uh, just keep that in mind. Um, Oh, I kept a spiral notebook for each of my parents. Uh, they were each in and out of the hospital, in and out of the nursing home. Uh, it was hard for me to keep up with all the changes and everything going on. I kept a spiral notebook. I dated it. I documented who I spoke with, what they said, when there was a change in medication, when there was a need here, what was going on with my parents, if I saw a change in them, so that when I went to the doctor and he said, well, how long have you noticed this? I didn't have to think back. There's so much going on. I could look at this, and it was here, and it was very helpful. And then when I had caregivers for my mother, um, I wished I should have thought about doing this for my dad, and I did not. Uh, and I will speak about this, but um, they, I had a notebook for them so that any time I was not with my mother, they documented what happened and how she was and who said what and so on. So this gave me, I just strongly urge you to think, consider this because it was very, very helpful to me. I was careful to include the date, names, and contact information of specific persons that I spoke with and all the pertinent information about our discussion. Uh, these journals aided my memory when I was asked, when did you first notice this, or have you seen improvement in the last week? These notebooks were also particularly helpful when fatigue and events became overwhelming. Our doctors were highly recommended, and we were appreciative of their dedication and services. However, it would have been more helpful if their care had been more team-driven rather than provider-driven. They didn't present choices or talk much about the, the trajectory that we were on or about the pros and cons of various treatments. We needed more information in order to make informed choices, and there was little time or energy to look for valid information online. Looking back, the healthcare provider should have been much more forthcoming in having discussions with us, and we should have been more assertive in getting information from them. Sometimes I really didn't know what questions to ask. I knew I needed to ask questions, but I wasn't sure which ones because I had no health background. When my father's kidneys failed, it was assumed that he would go on kidney dialysis. But there was no explanation about the advantages and disadvantages, particularly in the fact that he was now 90 years old. 
when I asked the cardiologist about this, he, his reply to me was, your kidney doctor is the best in town. Well, I think he was, but that was, really wasn't my question. So what I did actually, um, I went down the street to a friend of mine whose father had passed away. Her father had been on dialysis for a year and a half. And then he was diagnosed with um, bone cancer. So he asked his doctor, what does my life and death look like without dialysis? And the doctor told him. And he said, what does my life and death look like with bone cancer? And he told him. And he said, you know what? This is a no-brainer. And he went off dialysis that day. Kathy said that he, they had dinner as a family. For three or four nights, he was fine. And then one night, he had trouble getting up from the table, and her husband helped him to get in bed. He went, in, went to sleep, went into a coma, and he died very peacefully. No pain, no more dialysis not going through all the pain that would have come with the bone cancer or the treatments. So I went back and I told my dad, I said, you've always made decisions for yourself and so whatever decision you make, I will back you 100%. We will go with it. But I just want you to know what I have found out from this friend of mine. And you think about what you want to go through. So he said, well, let me think about it tonight. So I went back the next day and he said, I've thought about it. And what I think is, if I don't try it, I'll never know. And I said, okay, then you want to go with it? He said, yes. Now we still did not know everything that was involved with kidney dialysis about your diet, about how you feel. He was 90, he already had several other major issues. These should have been brought to our attention and it should have been said to him, this is your decision, but here is what you're looking at. Your decisions are not easy. Your choices are not easy because you cannot live without dialysis. But what do you want to do at age 90? Okay, so, <laughs> um, in another situation, now these are all situations that I look back on and say, you know, we could have been better served. In another situation, when my father was in the nursing home, he was experiencing some other difficulty. I really don't remember which issue. He had so many issues. He had C. diff, he had MRSA, he had, he had, he was just tenacious, I'll tell you, but anyway. Um, when he was in the nursing home, he was experiencing some difficulty, and I was debating whether to have him go to emergency again. His cardiologist was an acquaintance of ours, and he had always said to call him at home if we ever had concerns or questions. For the first and only time, I did call him, and he was very glad to talk with me, and he said, but he said, I have done all I can for your father. And if you take him to emergency, they probably can't do much for him either. 
And I was just speechless. He had never said this to me. I did not realize that we were at this turning point. I maybe should have, but I was so busy fixing everything that I didn't know. Um, then I wondered what to do next. What do I do? He's got symptoms. They can't handle it here at the nursing home very well. He'll go back to the hospital. They won't do much for him there except stick him a lot of times with the needles and do all these tests. This is where palliative care would have been so helpful. But nobody brought that up to me. Dad's doctors really should have guided me in this direction when they realized that we had reached this crucial turning point. Palliative care treats people who suffer from serious and chronic illnesses, including congestive heart failure and kidney failure, both of which presented daily trials for my father. My mother, too, suffered from congestive heart failure, shortness of breath, extreme fatigue, and depression. If they had received palliative care, a team of care specialists, including a doctor, nurse, social worker, nutritionist, and chaplain would have focused on symptom management and working with partners with my, working as partners with my parents and my brother and me. Their goal would have been to improve the quality of life for my parents, even while curative treatment was being provided and it would have greatly limited the number of hospital visits. In the last six months of his life, my dad was in the hospital 14 times. My mother, too, was hospitalized several times. Many of these visits did not contribute to their quality of life and did not improve their conditions, and no telling the cost to Medicare. Another example of lack of sufficient information given to us involved my appeal to the doctor to explain resuscitation so a decision could be made about DNR. His reply to my dad was, if your heart stops beating, do you want us to call the Harvey team? Do you want everything done? Obviously, he was uncomfortable discussing this topic, but it was necessary information for us to have, and we would have appreciated a compassionate discussion of my dad's condition, what exactly is involved in resuscitation and the Harvey team, and what the outcomes might be. Each of my parents was admitted to the hospital through the emergency department many times. Often this required hours of waiting before we were triaged. Everybody know what triage is? You know, they take all the information. Okay. Um, there were a few times that my father was so weak and ill that he should have been seen much sooner. Although I inquired about the possibility of him being seen immediately, no one came to our aid and I simply was not demanding enough. An option was to call his doctor, who would then have called emergency and urged an immediate intake, but I didn't know that. On two different occasions at the hospital, we were advised by nurses to always have an advocate with the patient. Once in emergency, my dad suggested that I go home. We had already been there several hours, and he would call me when he got a room. 
Although I would never have done that, the nurse taking blood looked up and said, do not ever leave a patient in emergency or the hospital without an advocate. During another visit, the nurse helped my dad get settled in his room and then called me into the hall to say, don't leave your dad alone. Too much falls through the cracks. One other note, release from the hospital can come on short notice. If the patient needs physical therapy, he may be sent to a nursing home where provisions for this help are already available. It is important that the advocate and patient have decided well in advance which facility they would prefer and determine if a bed is available. Once hospital release is in progress, there is little or no time to get this needed information. Uh, in your packet, again, under next step in care, uh, there's an excellent resource for hospital information from intake through release, and it discusses this. Turning points for the patient and caregiver. There were many turning points along this journey, beginning with the decision to move to Memphis, to my dad's loss of kidney function, and to my mother being put in hospice care. Each of these junctures required adjustments to the level of care needed, location of the patient, mental adjustment to these changes, and quality of life. At some point, at a different time for each of my parents, I suddenly realized that this was as good as it would ever be, and that from this point forward, their health and vitality would only decline. That was probably the biggest turning point for me. A palliative care nurse explained this trajectory. At some time, an event occurs. The patient has surgery or is otherwise treated, after which they experience a resurgence of health for several months or even years. Then there is another event, and this time recovery is good, but the patient regains only 90% of his previous vitality. The third event occurs sooner than the second, and the vitality returns at only 75%. With time, the events happen more and more frequently, and with each event, the patient's health is progressively compromised. I could then see clearly what was happening with my parents. I had been so, attent so intent on fixing the events that I had failed to see the big picture. Memories. Despite the difficulties of these days and the lessons learned, there were gifts, too. There was more time to spend with mom and dad and opportunities to appreciate their qualities and their devotion to each other. My mother, though experiencing much of her own fatigue due to her congestive heart failure, spent hours sitting with my dad in the nursing home, holding his hand even when he slept. When he saw her coming through the door, he often held up both arms in greeting and welcoming. Once he escaped the nursing home undetected, he propelled himself in his wheelchair down the hall, past the lobby and the dining room, and into the elevator, up to the third floor, and then down another set of long hallways, a journey that would have taken me at least 10 minutes on foot. He knocked on the apartment door, and my mother nearly fainted when she saw him. Woody, she exclaimed, what are you doing here? And his reply, I just wanted to see you. 
His last Christmas was spent in the hospital, and their anniversary was December 28th. Mom walked into his room that day with a large helium balloon that said, Happy Anniversary, and then it played, Just You and Me, Babe. Then she took his wedding ring out of her pocket and put it on his finger while she repeated, With this ring, I thee wed. Everyone shed tears, including the nurses, and I was left with an incredible memory. I hope my story and the resources I have related will be of some help to you and your loved ones. The coalition is always available as a community resource and you have our contact, contact information on your RAC card. In addition, our next program here at the library will be Sunday, May 1st, is that correct, or April? You'll have to look on your, somehow that date didn't seem right. From two to four, when Jerry Ashley will give a presentation on five wishes. Uh, we encourage your participation and questions, and please spread the word. I would like to take um, just a minute to, I have put some books on the back table that are mine, but you are more wel most welcome to look through them, and some of those are listed in your handout. Uh, I want to get one in particular, the, the book by Gail Sheehy. These are all excellent books. Passages in Caregiving by Gail Sheehy. I can't say enough about this. Um, she was a person, real quickly, she was a person who did not know about the healthcare system. However, she was very well connected, as you might imagine. And um, money was not particularly an object. But as I read this book, I was so amazed because the problems and the frustrations that she had and the questions she had were just like mine in so many instances. And I'm thinking, if this woman, with all her knowledge, all her connections with uh, good hospitals, good doctors, etc., was having this difficulty, then other people are too. And she gives the most wonderful, well-documented resources, things to think about, things to do, how to handle certain situations, etc. I cannot say enough about this book. Um, also, very quickly, on these resources, if you will look in your packet, let me just make a comment about a couple. <coughs> when you look down at end-of-life issues, the very bottom, theconversationproject.org is an excellent resource if you need to talk with family or friend, excuse me, family or friend about these issues. It is excellent. It will give you all kinds of information, how to start it, etc. Uh, on the back page of that, Organizing help on the internet are two very good sources, how you can go on the internet. And if you are needing help, and people always say, oh, tell me what I can do, and it's really hard to say what I can do. If you set up for meals, transport to doctors, etc., they can go on here and they don't have to call you. You don't have to go through, jump through these hoops. They just go on and say, okay, I'll do dinner on Tuesday, and then everybody else sees it too. So anyway, you can look at that down under various other references. Next Step in Care is excellent. 
It has a personal health record to download and fill out. It's a six-page piece. Um, after so many trips to the hospital and going through triage and asking, being asked the same questions over and over and trying to remember, when was this surgery, when was this, when was that, I finally wrote it out, <coughs> excuse me, so that I could either give it to them or tell them. I, I had a reference. Uh, these pages, if you download this and make several copies, is wonderful uh, because it's all right there. And that helps. Also, there are many electronic organizers now that will help people who are critically ill, uh, parents who are losing their memory a little bit. There are all kinds of ways for them to click onto this and you know if they're taking their medicine at a certain time, if they're doing this, if they're doing that. I mean, it's wonderful. There are two, um, two references for that, one, one under Next Step in Care, and the other one is on the next page under caregiver.org, Digital Technology for Caregiver and Patient. Um, there are online support groups that are also excellent. So uh, the next step, the next avenue is sponsored by PBS, and all of their articles are very, very good also. So I would highly recommend any of this. Um, please write your questions down, and when we're all finished with our presentation, um, feel free, and we'll have a little discussion or open questions about everything. Thank you so much. May first. You May, first? May Oh, May 1st is the date when Jerry Ashley will be here telling about five wishes. So I was correct about that. Thank you so much.